This is the Classic Baseball Broadcast Network, where we believe there is nothing like hearing about history from those who lived it. Listen to our full catalog of broadcasts at ClassicBaseballBroadcast.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please help me out and do one of three things. Follow, subscribe this podcast, and leave a review. It really helps. Share us with your baseball friends. Uh, let them know about us. Or jump over to members.thisdayinbaseball.com. Join our email list, community, and our family of baseball podcasts. welcomes you to another baseball broadcast brought to you direct from Comiskey Park by permission of the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox to stimulate interest in our national game and in your local team. And now out to Comiskey Park and Hal Totten, who is going to give us some inside information on today's game right from the playing field. Take it away, Hal Totten. Ladies and gentlemen, again we greet you from Comiskey Park, the home of the White Sox in Chicago, and the White Sox and Red Sox will continue their series this afternoon with the second game of the four to be played in three days. The third and fourth will take place tomorrow afternoon in a doubleheader out here at Comiskey Park. Once more, it's perfect baseball weather, warm, clear, sunshine, no clouds, and a breeze off the lake. What more could you ask? This afternoon, I've asked a young man who just trotted in from the outfield where he's been working out to chat with us a little bit. And, uh, what's the matter with him? That's Mitch, huh? Actually, not Mike, it's Mitch. Ray Bradford's telling me what to call him. That's Mitch Krivich, huh? Mike Krivich, the <laughs> pleasant center fielder of the White Sox. He's been moved around so much this year that we have to look out there every day to see where that little powerhouse is playing. Mike, uh, hi, anyway. I'm feeling fine, thanks. And, yeah. uh, tell me, I want to ask you a lot of questions about yourself because you haven't had you on before. Where'd yeah. you start in this game of baseball? I started at uh, McCook, Nebraska, to play professional baseball in uh, 1930. I see, 1930. What had you done before that, Mike? I worked at coal mines and played semi-pro ball in Illinois. Well, coal mines. That's where you got that pair of legs and pair of arms you got? That's right, Al. <laughs> That's where the power came That's from. That's right. right. And, uh... You came up with the Cubs part of for a little bit of one year, didn't you? In 1931, yeah. That was right after you started. Yes, uh, second year after I played. And uh, you were really pretty much the youngster about that time, weren't you? About 21, 22. Well, that's what I thought, because I remember you didn't didn't stick around long enough for us to get acquainted with you. And I kept looking for you to come back, and when you finally came back, you are here on the other side of town. And the White Sox fans seem to be very happy about that. Uh, Mike... What is this third baseman business you were doing out in the association last year? Well, uh, we had an infielder hurt, and a third baseman move over to short or second, and they pulled me in from the outfield to play third. Had you played it before? No, I played the infield at semi-pro ball. That was all, Hal. I see, but I uh, thought you'd try it out there. Well, you weren't pretty good at third base. I went fair, but have a chance to keep on playing it. Well, I think that's true of any position. If you get a chance to go in there and stay there, all right. But the trouble is in the big leagues that you really got to be all set when you get in there, don't that's you? That's right, Al. You don't have a chance to do any development up here. You've got to be all ready. You've got to be all ready, that's right. Uh, which field do you like to play best in the outfield, or do you care? Well, I've uh, played right field mostly. 
But I've been shipped around the center and left. I don't know which I'd like best right now. You, well, you look all right and all of them. The only time I ever saw you uh, get lost was in right field, and that was a thing I never expect to see you do again. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's the first time I played right field here in this park, and I say it's the worst in the league. And... Well, that's what they tell me. What is it makes it so bad? Well, the sun, Al. Uh, you don't get used to the sun. It makes it pretty hard to follow the ball. Well, why is the sun worse here than other parks? Because the sands are built differently or what? I think so, Hal. And there's a lot of wind here. You wait for the ball to come out of the sun before you notice either over your head or I to the side see. of you. I see. That's what that fellow had trouble the other day that helped us along. That's right. Puccinelli. Yeah, yeah Puccinelli. He was all set for the ball waiting. Yeah. And when it came out of the sun, he started to run, but he couldn't get there. Yeah, the ball was after that. 15, 20 foot away from him then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've always been a right-handed hitter, Mike? That's right, Al. And, uh, why you learn to throw the ball the way you do? Great guns, you throw that, look for a little fella, you throw that ball like you're about seven feet tall. Well, I don't know, Hal. I've always had a pretty good arm, and I just kept developing and throwing in from the outfield all the time. You, uh, <laughs> put the little spoon around my ear here on the way out of here. Uh, how do you develop, uh, accuracy in throwing? I mean, out there in the outfield, you don't have really have time to do much getting set before you throw here. Well, in practice, in fielding practice, I try to throw to the hitter that's uh, t- hitting uh, the fly ball. That I try to see how close I can throw to him. And, of course, the throw from the outfield should be made on the hop. On the hop. First hop. First hop. To any base and, uh, or to uh, the plate. That's right, Al. Uh, it should be thrown low, too. Well, that's right. Yeah. What is the most difficult field to uh, <laughs> wet now? <laughs> West Farrell going to get in his two bits here all the way through. Uh, which field is the toughest on the, from a defensive point of view as far as throwing is concerned? Uh, center field, I think, is the hardest. Because, uh, it's hard to see the home plate from, uh, behind the mound. And when you throw a ball good, it either hits the mound and bounces off to either side. It makes it hardest to throw from center field. I see. And you've got to just hope it's from one side or the other. That's right. And uh, in uh, center field, you have to have an extra good arm to do any throwing it to the plate, too, don't you? That's right, Al. And uh, what do you consider the toughest play that an outfielder has to make as far as uh, defense or fielding or anything else is concerned? Oh, I don't know, Al. Ball field it off to the side of you down the line, I think, is the toughest play. And trying to throw out the runner... Going from second to home. There are two, two really yeah, tough plays. They all come into baseball, and there's really not very many hard plays out in the outfield to make. Well, you just got to be there and catch it. That's that is, right. You ever had any, well, as seeing as you've had the infield experience, you haven't had much trouble with ground balls. Have you? No, I haven't. And uh, here's the thing that fans keep asking me in the letters time and time again, Mike, and that is how come an outfielder develops that uncanny ability to judge a ball You've got the sun, the wind, and sometimes a very bad sky, a glaring sky. And yet, uh, from the time the ball starts, uh, they seem to be heading in the right direction, even at the distance from the plate. Well, you have to watch uh, the ball when it leaves the pitcher's hand going to home plate, and uh, the hitter hits the ball, and if you watch the ball real close, you see you get the jump on the ball when it leaves the bat. Oh, I see, just by watching what is thrown. You by really do that. I wondered about that. Some people seem to think an outfielder doesn't even take notice until the ball starts in his direction. Well, uh, a lot of times, uh, if you play in center field, you can watch the pitch either inside or outside. If it's inside, the hitter mostly pulls it. I see. And so you start in that yeah, direction. And then after the pulled. ball gets up, you start uh, watching uh, whether it's short or going to go out, whether That's it's right. going to sink or sail. And then uh, from then on, you just hope you're right. Is that That's it? That's right, Al. <laughs> well, Mike, I imagine you want to go up and dry up a little bit. You've had your feeling practice. I want to thank you a lot. Yeah, the fans yeah. want to thank you for chatting with us. Well, thank you, radio fans. And uh, a lot of luck to you. Yes. Righto. 
That was Mike Cleavage, ladies and gentlemen, the White Sox center fielder with a pleasant little chat, as you heard and noticed, and I think you enjoyed it as much as I did, which was a whole lot. Now, here are the lineups for this afternoon's ball game. Austin, Cook, uh, right, Kramer, center, Manush, left, Fox, first, Kroner, second, Cronin, short, Werber, third, hello, Zeke, Berg, catching, Markham, pitching, for the White Sox, Radcliffe, left, Krevich, center, Haas, right, Sonora, first, Appling, short, Hayes, second, Tyus, third, Sewell, catching, and Dietrich, pitching. The umpires, McGowan at the plate, Ormsby at first, Hubbard at third. Well, I don't know, these umpires ought to be getting out here in just a moment, so I imagine I better start that trek up the booth, which is a long way from here. I can just barely see George, old Uncle George up there. What are you hanging on to that thing for? You afraid you're going to fall down, George? Hanging on to the windowsill up there, the frame. I don't know. Looks like they're going to have trouble this afternoon. He can't stand up or stuff. Just tired. I know. It's Saturday. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to wander upstairs while I'm on the way up. George, uh, can you sort of pull yourself together and switch us to the studio? You'll find that, just as there's a difference in gasoline, there's an amazing difference in chassis lubricants, too. For example, old-fashioned grease doesn't give the chassis parts of your car the same protection that Texaco Marpac does. You can see this for yourself. Rub a little ordinary grease between your fingers. Notice how it breaks away, separates. Marpac, on the other hand, clings and stretches. It's stringy, fibrous. That's why it forms a strong, lubricating film able to stand the hammering impact of hard, fast driving cushioning road shock mile after mile, completely protecting vital chassis parts against damage and wear. Your car investment warrants using the best possible chassis lubricant you can get. Next time, try a Marfac job at a Texaco station. Marfac saves you money because it lasts and lubricates for hundreds of extra miles. Don't just say grease, say Marfac. And now while Hal Totten is making that trek up to the booth out of Comiskey Park, to bring you this afternoon's baseball game between the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox, we'll give you the schedule of the other games to be played in both leagues this afternoon. First in the National League, the Chicago Cubs are in Boston this afternoon playing the Bees. The game has already started and is in the last half of the fifth inning. At the end of the first half of the fifth inning, the score is tied with no score. Carlton and Hartnett working for the Cubs, the Bees using Lanning and Lopez. In Philadelphia... The Phillies are playing the St. Louis Cardinals, and at the end of the third inning, the Cardinals are leading the Phils one to nothing. Parmalee and Ogradowski, the Cardinal battery, for the Phillies, Paso and Atwood. In New York, the Giants are leading the Pittsburgh Pirates at the end of the first half of the fourth inning, two to nothing. Blanton and Patton working for the Pirates, the Giants using Smith and Mancusa. In Brooklyn, the Dodgers are leading the Cincinnati Reds at the end of the fifth inning by a score of eight to nothing. Derringer and Lombardi, the red battery, the Dodgers starting Butcher and Phelps. Now over in the American League, the Tigers will play the Washington Senators this afternoon. That game has not started and there are no batteries 
as yet. In Cleveland, the Indians are taking on the American League-leading New York Yankees. The batteries for the Yankees, Gomez and Dickey. For the Indians, Allen and Pitlack. In St. Louis, the Browns will play the Philadelphia Athletics this afternoon. That game will start about 4 o'clock. And now for a look at the standing of the clubs in both leagues as of the beginning of the games this afternoon. In first place, the Chicago Cubs, having played 94 games, of which they have won 58 and lost 36. In second place, the St. Louis Cardinals, one full game behind the Chicago Cubs. Third place, the New York Giants, seven games behind. And in fourth place, the Pittsburgh Pirates, eight and one-half games behind. In fifth position, the Cincinnati Reds, eleven and a half games behind. Sixth place, the Boston Bees, who are playing the Chicago Cubs in Boston today. And the Bees are fourteen and a half games behind the Cubs. In seventh place, the Philadelphia Phillies, twenty-one games behind. And in eighth place, down in the basement, the Brooklyn Dodgers, twenty-four and one-half games behind. Over in the American League, first position is held by the New York Yankees. They've played 99 games so far this year. They've won 65 of the games and lost 34. In second place, the Cleveland Indians, whom the Yankees are playing today, and they're eight and a half games behind the Yanks. Third place is held by the visiting Boston Red Sox out of Comiskey Park, and the Red Sox are 11 and a half games behind the Yankees. In fourth place, the Detroit Tigers, 12 and a half games behind. Fifth place, our Chicago White Sox, and they're 13 games behind. They're one half game behind the Detroit Tigers for fourth place. In sixth position, the Washington Senators, 16 games behind. And in seventh place, the St. Louis Browns, 30 games behind. We're playing the eighth position Philadelphia Athletics in St. Louis this afternoon, and the A's are 32 and a half games behind first place. So far today, there's been one home run, and that was made in the National League by Bartell of the Giants. In the third inning, with one man on base to score the only two runs that the Giants have been able to score, having the score now at the end of the first half of the fourth inning, two to nothing in favor of the Giants against the Pirates. The home run leaders today stand as follows. The Lou Gehrig of the Yankees is in first place with 33 homers for the year. In second place, Jimmy Fox of the Red Sox and Trotsky of the Indians are tied, both having had 30. Third place, Mel Ott of the Giants, 21. Fourth place is shared by Averill of the Indians and Camille of the Phillies with 20 apiece. Dickey of the Yankees is at 18, as has Klein of the Phils. Berger of the Bees, 17. DiMaggio of the Yanks, 16. Also Goslin of the Tigers and Johnson of the Athletics. Medwick of the Cardinals is at 15. Selkirk of the Yanks, 14. Jay Moore of the Phillies, 13. Also Demery of the Cubs. Goodman of the Reds, 12. Collins of the Cardinals, 11. Also, Myers of the Cardinals, Lazari of the Yankees, Cool of the Senators, and Hale of the Indians. All have had 11 home runs this year. Here is an interesting baseball note. It comes to us from Columbus, Ohio, that the Brooklyn Dodgers have just purchased Jack Winsett for the outfield with the Dodgers, and they purchased Jack Winsett from the Columbus Redbirds, who are members of the American Association. Well, the Brooklyn Dodgers will now have a new outfielder in the person of Jack Wind. That purchase was just completed a few minutes ago in Columbus, Ohio. And now for a look at the home runs that were hit yesterday. In the National League, Lieber of the Giants had his sixth of the season. And Klein of the Phillies had his 18th. Camelli of the Phillies had his 20th. Berger of the Bees 
had two, his 16th and 17th yesterday. And now I see that Hal Totten is ready, and we'll go back to Comiskey Park to the baseball game, brought to you by permission of the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox to stimulate interest in our national game and in your local team. Take it, Hal Totten. Back at the ballpark, ladies and gentlemen, and the first man is back, Cook of the Red Sox, the leadoff man, has a count of three balls and one strike. The first three pitches were all bad, and the next one came over the inside corner for a strike. Dietrich winds up again, throws for strike two. Fastball over the outside corner about waist high to make it three and two. Three balls and two strikes. Dietrich throws again, the hitter swings and misses, striking out for the first out in the first inning. Well, in the old days, that used to be called bad luck. Striking out that first man, they used to say that put the pitcher off on the wrong foot and he was going to have a lot of bad luck. But in recent years, the pitchers have come to look at that as just about the surest way of getting that first man out, and after all, it's just another out. And now Cleveland but takes the first one for a strike. It's over the heart of the plate, about waist high, and uh, time is suddenly called when they discover a extra ball way out in center field out there. I don't know where that came from or why. And now suddenly, umpire McGowan starts waving his hands back and forth. Whether he's indicating if that other pitch didn't count and this man just starting out or time is back in. There's no, it's nothing and nothing. That pitch did not count. Apparently the time had been called and the shortstop was on the way back when the uh, first pitch was made and the umpire indicates one strike now. Time has been called when Dietrich pitched that first one. The hitter follows the next one back to the screen for the second strike anyway. And it's two strikes on Crane. Two strikes to count. Throws again, and then Kramer swings and misses. No, he tipped the ball foul. It dropped out of the catcher's glove. On the ground of the left, it just tipped ball back against the catcher's glove and dropped to the ground. And it's a foul again, and it's still two strikes on Kramer. He throws once more, and Raj follows this one back to the screen. It's still two strikes. Oh, the seat is getting that ball in there. That's certain. Winding up, throws again, and the hitter swings, hit a foul, going into the stands, back to third base, and it's still two strikes on Kramer. Two strikes to count. Since his second strike, he's fouled about four or five of them. Still winding up, throws again, a slow ball, is high and wide for ball one. And it makes it one ball and two strikes on Kramer. One and two. Bill has the sign again. Winds up. Throws. Kramer swings. Hit a high fly to short center field. Greenwich is coming in very, very fast. And makes the catch. Out back to second base for the second out. So it's two out in the first inning for the Red Sox. And Lanny Minutes, Boston heavy hitting, left-handed swinging left fielder, is up there to play. She winds up now. Throws the first one. And Lanny takes a wide one low for ball one. One ball called on Minutes. Throws again and Heine swings in a high fly going foul onto the roof of the stand above and to the right of the plate. And it's one and one on Manoj. One ball and one strike. There comes the next one for ball two inside. And it's two balls and one strike on Heine. 
two and one. Pitcher winds up easily again. Pitches in the nurse swings hit a pop fly going down back at third base ball. Hyatt is following it over to the dugout, but it lands on the slanting roof of the dugout, the concrete roof, and bounds well back into the seat, and it's two and two. Two balls and two strikes on Manush. Dietrich again has the sign, winds up, and throws and Heine swings a high fly to right field, pretty well back, with Hobbs waiting under it. He has it. And it's three out, no runs, no hits in the first inning for the Red Sox. And the score is nothing to nothing as the White Sox come to bat in the last half of the first inning. First White Sox hitter will be Rip Radcliffe, the White Sox second baseman. What did I say, second baseman? Left fielder. I was thinking of something else. What I was thinking was this. I'm starting to glance down that lineup and see just what ball, what a ball club we couldn't make of the fellows in these in this game on the two teams, or the two squads, formerly with the Philadelphia Athletics. And there's quite a lineup of them there that would make quite a ball club if you cut right down to it as far as each position is concerned. Now, just looking first at the moment to find out a second baseman. Williams is no longer with him, is he? No. Tip Williams was with him for a while. They've got McNair out there who could play second, but then who would play short? I could it's almost a complete lineup from those former A's, which would be a pretty fair ball club in the league, my friend. <laughs> no kidding. They uh, add the two men that are now with the uh, Detroit Tigers, and you'd have almost a completely rounded team. That clip, stocky little left-handed hitter. Sox leadoff man, left fielder, is up there at the plate. He's a brown bat this afternoon. <coughs> nice shiny new one. And uh, old Johnny Markham, puts Markham, finishes warm-up. He's a great big husky fellow, right-hander, with rather large puppies, which is where he gets that nickname. Gets his sign, starts his wind-up, and throws... And it's a slow curve that comes inside and low for ball one. One ball called. The hitter hits the next one, about it off to the right of the second baseman. On into center field for a base hit. A single by Radcliffe to open the ball game. Puts him on first base with nobody else in the first inning for the Sox. And Mike Savick, White Sox center fielder, right-handed hitter, also starkly built fellow but powerfully built, is up there to play. Waits out there now to get the sign, get the pitches. Mike was already in front, but pulled back behind inside for ball one. One ball called. He throws again for a strike. That ball over the part of the plate, just a little above the knees. Dropped out of the catcher's ball, but he recovered it right to the seat. And it's one and one. One ball and one strike on Kravitz. One and one to count. Mike swings the next one, pass ball outside, and misses it for strike two. And it's one ball and two strikes.
Says that sign again. Takes another look at first pitch as Mike swings in a long foul away down the right field line up onto the roof of the stand. And it's one and two. One ball and two strikes. One and two. Waiting out there once more. Throws. And the hitter swings and tips the ball foul. Hits the catcher's glove. Rolls off to the right on the ground. And it's still one ball and two strikes. On One and two. Throws once more. Mike swings in a foul down past third base on down the line. Hits the canvas down there. Rolled up in front of the stand. And it's still one ball and two strikes. On Pavis. That's it. Gets back to first base. He was on the goal that time. And the hitter was all set for the next one, but changed his mind in time to let it go by wide for ball one in the county. Ball two, rather. The county's two balls and two strikes on Crete. Making this fellow Markham pitch. Johnny turns and throws to first base. Ronnie gets back in time, so ball goes right back to pitcher. Now he pitches and Mike swings in a foul going into the stands to the right of the plate. Berg started over but realized the ball was pretty well back in the seat. So it's still two balls and two strikes on Kravitz. Markham waiting there. He's set once more. There's the stretch. He looks back at the runner pitches. And Mike swings in another foul down past first base. Hits in front of the stands. Bounce third down into right field. Man, he's really falling off those good ones, isn't he? Two and two. Two balls and two strikes. Once again, goes once again. And Mike swings to right center. Center fielder closing in on it fast. Out in front of the And he gets the ball fast. After the runners. At first, Kramer stopped up to let Cook come over to make the play. Cook threw himself at the ball but couldn't quite reach it. And the runners could only get as far as first and second because right up to the last minute, Radcliffe had to wait to make sure that ball wasn't going to be caught. But it looked as though it was going to be. It was hit pretty high. Sort of a technical leaguer, although it had a little marpack on it. Went for a little farther out than you might expect. A technical leaguer to go, but still it was a looping fly out in right center. That fell for a base hit. And so now the White Sox have runners on first and second, with nobody out of the first inning, and Mule Haas is at bat. And he reaches out, bunch the first one perfectly back to Markham, who gets the ball, throws the first, Fox backing up to take the throw, and it's a good sacrifice by Haas. Play going from Markham to Fox for the first out in the first inning, moving the White Sox runners now to second and third. Haas is one of the really good butters in baseball. Lays that ball down perfectly. Well, Markham's walking slowly back onto the mound. Ready there, getting his sign. Takes quite a while. 
Bonnie starts his wind up. And throws and the hitter swings in a ball hard down past Werber. It goes on into left field for a base hit. One run is scoring. Previous is around third base on the way. And the left fielder Manush gets the ball fast enough to hold Manur at first. He cracks a single down past Werber. Down the left field line. Scoring red, flipping Krivich. Give the White Sox a 2 to nothing lead in the first inning. They still have Manur on first base. One out, two runs home. And Luke Appling is at bat. Appling up there, but she gets ready to pitch the first one throws. And Luke takes a strike over the outside corner across the knee for strike one. One strike on Luke. Throws again, and it's a slow one that comes over the inside corner a little above the knees. And it's strike two. So it's two strikes now on Appling. Two strikes on Appling. Luke again was all set to reach for one, but a curve so wide and low he let it go by for ball one. And it makes it one and two. One ball and two strikes. Luke swings the next hit, a high fly to right field, but Cook is in under it, waiting for it. Has it, and it's two out in the first inning. Two out in the first inning from Sox with Jackie Hayes, White Sox second baseman at bat. Throws now on the curve. Ball goes wide and low for ball one. One ball called. Throws again, and the hitter hits one, but it's fouled down the left field line. The ball was well hit, but he pulled it around too far, landed foul by three or four feet, but well down beyond third base, hits the front of the stands, bounds clear out to the left field wall. Muddy Rule trots out to get it and carries it back to the bullpen. One and one to count, one ball and one strike. And the hitter swings the next one, the hitter bounded to Cronin and gets it, flips it to Cronin at second, and Benura is forced out for the third out in the first inning. So it's two runs, three hits, one man left on base in the last half of the first inning, and the score is two to nothing in favor of the White Sox at the end of the first inning. Oh, darn, look who walked up here. Old friend Abe Marowitz comes walking up here. You're not in Europe again or something now, huh? You're not going to stick around home for a while, are you, Abe? Till September. Back to Ireland. Going to kiss that Blarney Stone again? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, don't risk expensive motor repair bills with cheap bargain oil. Give your car the kind of oil it deserves. An oil which will stand up under the terrific heat of fast driving and slow inching along in heavy traffic. Use nothing but new Texaco motor oil. With Texaco in the crankcase, you can be sure that the motor in your car is receiving 100% lubrication. Ready to go now in the second inning. With Jimmy Fox at bat for the Red Sox, and he takes the first pitch for a strike over the heart of the plate, down around the knee. One strike on Fox. And there's a high one inside for ball one. So the count is one ball and one strike. One and one now. It throws again, and the hitter hits the hard bounder down to Appling, who comes up with it nicely. Throws the first, and Fox is out when he's little more than halfway to first base for the first out in the second inning. One out of the second inning for the Red Sox. And Croner, the Boston second baseman, another right-handed hitter. He's a big rangy boy. He's up there at the plate. 
Abe, who's that good-looking fellow that came in there with you? That isn't Colonel. Oh, Colonel Kirsch? Colonel Kirsch, huh? Hello, Harry. The first pitch to corner is a strike. Cut the outside corner about knee-high. Throws a gun down the hitter, swings the hitter bounder, a long hopper down to Platt, who gets it, throws the first, and Coner is out for the second out in the second inning. That makes it two out in the second inning for the Red Sox, and Joe Cronin, the Boston manager and shortstop, is at bat. Cronin up at the plate, White Sox leading two to nothing in the first half of the second inning, two out for Boston, and Dietrich pitches, the hitter takes a strike. Fastball cut the heart of the plate, waist high, and it's one strike on Conan. The next pitch is a strike two. It's over the heart of the plate about knee high and it's two strikes on Conan. There's strike three. Right down the middle knee high. Joe turns and starts for his position right away. He knew he was out the minute that ball came anywhere near the plate and he had his bat on the shoulder. Dietrich crossed him up and struck him out. So it's no runs, no hits in the first half of the second inning, and the score is still two to nothing in favor of the White Sox. Found about in the last half of the second. Tony Platt is already up there near the plate, waiting to be the first hitter. Markham arrives on the mound. Sloshes a lot of rosin around in the pocket of the glove and then picks up the ball, starts to warm up with Berg. I think the game will last long enough for him and for George to get that cigar taken care of, Harry. Boy, I want to really watch something. You want to see George when he gets that rope in his mouth and starts to pull out that big cigar. Man, oh man. Hmm. How's this up today, George? we got to work tonight, so you dress up to work, huh? I see. I see. Here's Platt's bat to start the last half of the second inning. Markham stops to smooth the dirt down in front of the slab. Wipes his fingers dry in the shirt front. Justice Cap gets his sign. Starts his wind-up. And pitches. And the hitter hits the bounder down a deep short. Cronin grabs it away over there, throws the first. And the runner is out by a very, very little more than an eyelash down there. It was a much less than a step because that ball had to come from deep short where it was fielded after arriving there slowly. And Platt wasn't very slow getting down there either. He was hurrying hard. As a result, Platt is out on a close play and it's one out in the second inning, bringing Luke Sewell to bat. Markham is winding up. Pitches and Luke takes a strike. Pretty one over the heart of the plate about waist high. One strike on Sewell. And there's a wide one across the knees for ball one. So the count is one ball and one strike on Sewell. One and one the count. And there's a wide one across the knees for ball two. <laughs> two balls and one strike. Markham again starts to wind up. Pitches, and the hitter takes a high one inside for ball two, a three round. And it's three and one on Luke. Three balls and one strike on Sewell. Winding up throws again. 
Two swings, hit the ball out. Oh, Croner made a pretty play to get that on the line. Ray Couch was right very fast and got that line smash off Sewell's bat for the second out. The ball was mighty well hit, and Croner had to act very, very fast to get. So it's two out in the second inning for the White Sox, and Bill Dietrich, White Sox pitcher, got a nice hand as he walks up the plate. Right-handed hitter as he is a right-handed pitcher. And pretty good hitter, too. You'll remember what he did the other day. Swings the first pitch to follow it back to the screen for strike one. One strike is the count. Waiting there again. Winds up. And throws, and Dietrich had to twist away from that one. It almost hit him. I thought for a second it possibly caught just brushed his uniform, but he just managed to twist away from the pitch. And it's one and one. One ball and one strike. Catcher goes out there in front of the plate before returning a new ball to the pitcher. Now Berg is back, crossing a pass to Stein. Markham leans over to get it. Starts to wind up. Throws and the hitter swings and misses a slow curve for strike two. And it's one ball and two strikes on Dietrich. One and two. Markham again winding up. Throws. Still swings and misses. Striking out on another curveball for the third out. Well, I said he was a pretty good hitter, but he didn't have much luck that time, but he certainly did the other day. No runs, no hits in the last half of the second inning. And the score stands 2 to nothing in favor of the White Sox at the end of the second inning. Field announcer on the PA system is again announcing the fact that tomorrow there's a doubleheader between the White Sox and the Red Sox. First game starting at 1.30. We haven't done it already and are out now for that weekend trip. When you stop in at the Texaco service station to get your gas, your old fire keep gasoline or Marfec job or Texaco motor oil or new motor oil, why also ask for request cards. Or if you're all gas and oiled up, just stop in and ask for the request card anyway for the new 1936 Texaco scorebook. Fill it out and with your name and address, it's already addressed to me, put a one-cent stamp on it and mail it. You'll get this scorebook with a complete scoring system with illustrations and explanations. Space for 17 full games, the official blank, and pictures of the Cubs and Sox and a lot of other things that you'd like. So don't forget it. Bill Werber swings hard at the first ball pitch, misses it, tried to stop his swing, but the bat flipped out of his hands, went almost back to the stand to the left of the plate, and Werber has to stop back there to get it. One strike on Werber. And walking slowly back towards the plate again, rubbing his hands, wrists, and arms dry. And now Bill is back there at the plate with the pitcher ready once more. He starts to wind up, throws, and the hitter leads back to take a ball inside across the waist, making it one and one. One ball and one strike. He throws again, and Bill takes ball two. It's inside across the waist to make it two balls and one strike. Two and one on Werber. Throws once more. Werber swings in a high fly. Appling is back on the edge of the grass. Comes back in a little bit into the skin part of the diamond and catches that soft fly for the first out in the third inning. One out of the third inning for the Red Sox. And Berg, Mo Berg, the Boston catcher. Another right-handed hitter. Steps up there to the plate. 
Isak starts to wind up. Throws and the hitter takes a fast strike over the heart of the plate. Waste high. One strike on Bird. He has his sign again. He's winding up. Throws and the hitter swings. Hits the bounder back past the pitcher. Hayes gets it back at second base. Throws the first. And Berg is out for the second out in the third inning. That makes it two out of the third inning for the Red Sox. And Markham, Johnny Markham, the pitcher, who is also a very good hitter, so much so that he's frequently used and has been used as a pinch hitter, starts walking slowly up there to the plate. And old shuffling walker he is. One bat decided that wasn't the one. Had to go back and get another. But he's almost up to the plate now. Walking slowly up there to take his turn at that. Finally steps up there. He bats left-handed, although a right-handed pitcher. Very husky fellow steps up there, taps the bat against the plate. It's all set, and Dietrich starts to wind up throws. Markham takes a slow strike. To the outside corner about waist high. One strike on Markham. Johnny suddenly steps back and pulls a piece of tape off the handle of the bat that has seemed to be rolled up, uncomfortably gripped. Dietrich throws again, and Markham swings hit a bounder. Appling gets it away over towards second base, throws the first, and Markham is out for the third out. And it's no runs, no hits again in the third inning for the Red Sox. And Dietrich really gets a fine hand as he walks into the bench after that exhibition, retiring the side in order, and three successive innings. And the White Sox come to bat in the last half of the third inning. Ahead of the batting order up there, Rip Rack, Pippet Bat, and the score two to nothing in their favor. This broadcast, the White Sox Boston game, comes to you directly from Miskey Park, home of the White Sox in Chicago, as a presentation of your neighborhood Texaco dealer, distributor of Texaco Fire Chief Gasoline. The broadcast comes with the permission of the White Sox and the Red Sox to stimulate interest in our national game and in your own local baseball team. WCFL of Chicago. Is there, but you're out there getting ready to pitch to him. And he's winding up. Throws and the ripper takes a slow one that catches the outside corner about waist high for strike one. One strike on Radcliffe. Throws once again for a strike two. Another slow ball that started outside, curved slowly toward the hitter and caught the plate. And it's two strikes on the ripper. Markham throws again and rips swings in a ball out in the left center. Kramer's going after it fast and makes the catch out there for the first out in the third inning. Ball pretty well hit, but Kramer had no trouble getting it. So it's one out in the third inning for the White Sox. And Mike Cleavich, the White Sox center fielder, steps up to the plate. Which winds up now. Pitch the first one to Cleavich. Throws. Mike swings to follow the ball into the stand to the right of the plate. Well, it hits the front of the second deck. Bounce back down into the field. One strike on Cleaver. It's your old friend here, George. Butter all over his back. <laughs> One strike to count, but he winds up again, throws, and Cleaver swings in a ball hard. Cronin goes to his right, grabs to the ball, hits his glove, and then goes trickling out back. Of him, and I don't know whether they'll call that a hit or a error because... 
It was rather a close decision. It goes with an error. An error for Cronin on Peter Clark's match. The ball was right straight at him. And Cronin really should have had it, although the ball was hit pretty hard. And it puts Peter on first base with one out in the third inning. And Haas. New Haas is at bat. First pitch to the donkey is a strike over the inside corner. Bird slapped the ball down to first base, and Fox dashing over had to leap way out in foul territory to get a very wide throw to keep it from going on down the line. One strike on Haas. Markham throws again for strike two. A beauty down the middle waist high. Mule didn't move the bat off his shoulder. And it's two strikes on Haas. Two strikes to count. Markham ready again, and Haas swings have hit a high foul coming down to the left of the plate. Bird chasing over there, but it's back in the seat. Out of well out of his reach. It's still two strikes on Huff. Newell picks up Moe's cap and mask, cuts them off, hands them to him so that no time lost. He gets back up there to the plate. Two strikes to count. And Markham has his time with a new ball to pitch. Ready? Pitches. And Haas jumps back to take a high one for ball one. Jump back with the ball was high and wide. So it's one and two. One ball and two strikes. Hill swings again and hits a long foul down the left field line. Back into the seat. Rather a slow one, but it was pretty wide. Mule waited for it and then picked that quick poke at it. But it went foul. So it's one and two. One ball and two strikes on Haas. And then to the count. Hill swings it. The next one right back at Markham who turns and throws it to Cronin. He throws the first. And it's a double play ending the third inning. The play going from Markham to Cronin to Fox. And it's a three out. No run. No hit. One error. In the last half of the third inning. And at the end of the third inning, the White Sox are leading the Red Sox by a score of two to nothing. Now for up to the minute scores and complete batteries from other cities. We return to the studio. In the National League in Boston, the Chicago Cubs and Bees are going into extra innings at the end of the ninth inning. The game stands at a scoreless tie. Carlton and Hartnett, the Cub battery, the Bees using Lanning and Lopez. In Philadelphia, the St. Louis Cardinals and Phillies are tied at the end of the first half of the sixth inning, one each. Parmalee and Ogledowski, the Card battery, the Phillies using Paso and Atwood. In New York, the Giants are leading the Pittsburgh Pirates at the end of the first half of the fifth inning, two to nothing. Landon and Patton starting for the Pirates. With Brown pitching in the fifth, the Giants using Smith and Mancuso. In Brooklyn, the Dodgers lead the Cincinnati Reds at the end of the eighth inning, 11-4. Derringer and Lombardi open for the Reds with Stein in the sixth and Hollingsworth on the mound in the seventh. In the American League, the Detroit Tigers are leading the Washington Senators at the end of the second inning, 3 to nothing. Whitehill and Miller is the Senator battery, the Tigers using Lawson and Hayworth. In Cleveland, the New York Yankees lead the Indians at the end of the second inning, 1 to nothing. Gomez and Dickey, the Yankee battery, Allen and Fitlack working for the Indians. In St. Louis, the batteries for the Browns and the Philadelphia Athletic Games, the A's, Ross, and Hayes for the Browns, Andrews, and Giuliani. And now back to Comiskey Park and Hal Totten. Take it, Hal. Back at the ballpark for the fourth inning, Dusty Cook, the Red Sox right fielder at bat, follows the first ball into the stands down the left field line for a strike. Now takes one inside for ball one. Dietrich winds up, throws again, and it's ball two high and wide, making it two balls and one strike on Cook. Two and one. Dietrich waiting again, has the sign, winds up, throws, 
Cook swings and tips the ball foul into the catcher's glove for strike two. And it's two balls and two strikes on Cook. Going through the count. Dietrich winding up, throws again. Cook takes strike three. A beauty down the middle, just about knee high. He knew it was good the minute it came over because he promptly turned, flipped his bat back toward the bench, and kept right on and going toward the bench. He knew he let a good one go by that trip. So it's one out of the fourth inning for the Red Sox. And Kramer, Roger Kramer, the Boston center fielder. Another left-handed hitter is up there at the plate. Dietrich throws the first one, and Raj follows the ball out of the roof of the stand above and to the left of the plate for strike one. One strike on Kramer. Throws again. The hitter swings and misses a high fastball inside for strike two. So it's two strikes on Kramer. Two strikes to count. Well, but isn't Ernie back again? Uh-huh. Throws again and it's a high one wide for ball one, making it one ball and two strikes on Kramer. One and two is the count. Take a look around. The boy's out there in the field, suddenly toward right field for some reason or other. Now he gets his sign, winds up again, throws, and the hitter swings it. One in the left field for a base hit. The first base hit off him today. Radcliffe lets the ball get past him, and the runner tears for second base and gets in safely. And I imagine it'll be a hit and an error. First man to reach base today, the first base hit off Dietrich for the Red Sox, and I believe it'll be a single and an error, because if the ball had been fielded quickly and cleanly, the runner would have been able to get only one base on it, even though the ball did take rather a nasty hop to get past Radcliffe. So Cook is on second base with one out. In the fourth inning of the man up there, Manush takes the first pitch inside across the waist for ball one. Yeah, the verification of our guests come through, and it was a hit and an error. It's the next one, a high fly to deep right field, way out in right center, but Haas is back there, makes the catch, the runner from second, starts for third, keeps right on and going as Hayes gets the ball, sees that he's there, so merely throws it on in to Appling. So it's two out. In the fourth inning for the Red Sox, Kramer is on third base, and Jimmy Fox is at bat. Jimmy Fox up there at the plate, two out, man on third for the Red Sox, and he takes the first one, a curveball wide and low for ball one. Score is two to nothing in favor of the White Sox in the first half of the fourth inning. Jimmy gets the ball back deeply, comes back behind the plate again, starts to give the sign. getting his sign, starts to wind up, throws in the hitter, swings in a high fly, foul down the right field line, way back onto the roof of the stands, I believe, way over, and it's one and one, one ball and one strike on Jimmy Fox, hitter swings hard, the next one to miss for strike two. And it makes it one ball and two strikes on Fox. One and two as he counts. 
And there's strike three right down the middle, let it high. And Jimmy knows it too. There's no protest as he starts for his position at first base. Pretty, pretty pitches. Pretty pitches by Dietrich. No runs, one hit, one error, one man left on base. And he gets a grand hand as he goes back to the bench again. Score standing two to nothing in favor of the White Sox. White Sox at bat in the last half of the fourth inning with Zeke Venora, White Sox first baseman, he first man up. He's really got something out there today, my friends. He's fast, he's got a curveball, his control is good, and he's really looking swell. Zeke is standing there swinging a couple of bats as Markham goes through his warm-up paces. Johnny says he's had enough, but the ball is already on the way back to him, so he lobs it back to Berg, and he throws it out to second base. Croner always takes the throw, tosses it to Cronin, who rubs it up a little, throws it back to Croner. He returns to the pitcher, then walks back to his position. And uh, Markham is up there smoothing the return and down in front of the slab. Getting ready to pitch the first one to Benora. Markham starts to wind up throws, and Zeke swings at a beauty off the left field for a long base hit. His second hit of the game, a long line single. The left field by Benora, winning him on first base. Nobody out of the fourth inning for the White Sox. And Luke Appling, White Sox shortstop, is at best. As he signs, throws the hitter, swings it, a bounder down to the shortstop. Cronin grabs it, throws the second in time to get Benura, but the play had taken too long to even try for a double play. Benura is forced at second. Cronin to Croner for the first out in the fourth inning, leaving Appling on first base. With one out in the fourth inning, and Jackie Hayes, White Sox second baseman, is at best. First pitch to Jackie is a slow one that comes over the outside corner about knee high for a strike. One strike on Hayes. Markham throws again and Jackie follows the fastball into the well back against the front of the second deck. Bounds clear back down almost to the plate. And it's two strikes. Two strikes on Hayes. Two strikes to count, it's ready again. Throws, and the hitter hits the ball to right field. The right fielder's backing up nicely. Makes the catch, and Appling, who is about halfway to second, has to turn around and jog back to first. So it's two out of the fourth inning for the White Sox. Appling is on first base, and Tony Plant, White Sox third baseman, is up there at the plate. Throws the first base, runners back there. Jazzy Sun throws over to first base again. But there's no play, so the ball comes back to him. He gets ready once more to pitch to. Ooh, another fast one over there. <laughs> but the runner was back. 
And once again, the pitcher walks back on the slab, watches the plate pretty carefully. Pitches with the runner on the goal. The hitter fouls the ball back to the screen, and it's one strike on Platt. One strike to count. Gets back to first base and Fox comes along with Fox's glove, so he holds it out. And Appling is tying the knot in the webbing or something. I don't know just what it was, but it helped Fox fix the glove. And now Jimmy's back on the base again. The pitch had thrown a couple, just to keep loosened up while that was going on. But play is called back in, so Platt steps back up to the plate. Now the pitcher throws and Platt swings in a high fly coming down foul back of the plate. Burgess chasing it back, 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 and it lands way back here against the net back of the plate. And it's two strikes on five. Two strikes to count. Berg really was coming back hard there, but the wind blowing strongly from the east and northeast was carrying it back to the stand. So it's still two strikes on five. Mark him on the slab again. And they caught the hit-and-run sign that time. Appling is out. Now he's safe. Or is he out? He called him out, and then suddenly he started to swing his hands parallel to the ground, the umpire did, but he was out coming in there. The throw was high. Apparently they caught that hit-and-run sign and called for a pitch out. Berg's throw was high, but Cronin grabbed it and got it. Or rather, Croner did, and got it on the runner in time to get the man. The umpire, Hubbard, uh, raised his arm in the air, indicating the out, and then the... Fielder did a peculiar thing and one that they very seldom do. He made another stab at the runner after already getting the decision and apparently caught him again, although the umpire was waving his hand parallel to the ground, but apparently just indicating that the play was all over and that the second attempt was not necessary. So Appling is out stealing for the third out. Play going from Ferg to Croner, and it's no runs, one hit. In the fourth inning for the White Sox, the score still standing 2 to nothing in favor of the White Sox, at the end of the fourth inning. Now Croner, the second baseman, is at bat. Starts to wind up. Throws and the hitter swings and misses a curveball inside for strike one. One strike on Croner. Dietrich winds up again. Pitches and the hitter takes a strike over the outside corner across the knees. And it's two strikes on Cronin. Swings the next one. Hit a long drive, but it's a long fly to right. And Haas is back easily to make the catch for the first out in the fifth inning. One out in the fifth inning for the Red Sox. And Joe Cronin steps up there to the plate. Red Sox manager and shortstop stops to talk to umpire McGowan while he's waiting for Dietrich to finally get the ball. The infielders are throwing it back and forth for a moment. And now Joe steps back up to the plate. He winds up, throws, and the hitter swings and missed a high fastball inside for strike one. One strike on Cronin. Again, winding up throws, and Joe swings hit a beauty out to right center of feet. Going out the way out there, Krivich just manages to catch up with the ball, turns, throws it hard to second base, 
And Conan gets in there, stretching it to a double. Previch had to feel that ball very fast to keep it from being at least a triple because he was racing way over into deep right center to catch up with the ball. Then he had to get his balance turned and throw it in, and Conan reached second base. So it's a two-base hit, right center by Conan, putting him on second base with one out of the fifth inning. And Werber at bat. That's the second Red Sox hit off Dietrich today. Bill Werber up there at the plate. He throws and Bill takes the curve ball wide and low for ball one. Suddenly, Sewell walks out to talk to Dietrich for a moment. Apparently setting him down a little bit. He possibly didn't throw just exactly what he started to that time. Sewell slaps him on the back, sends him back out onto the mound. And Lucas coming back behind the plate. Which is all set. Looks back at second now. Pitches. And the hitter follows this ball back into the stand. Down here in front of the second deck. <laughs> Fella grabbed it. Fumbled it about four times. Finally it rolled over to someone else. And it's one and one on Werber. One ball and one strike. Throws the next one, the hitter swings and follows the ball on the ground, bounds up and hits him in the leg, and bounds over on the ground, back of the plate. Who picks it up, rubs it up a little bit, throws it back out to Dietrich. One ball and two strikes. On Werber. Ready again, seems to have his sign, looks back at the runner, then pitches. And Werber hits a long hopper down to Appling, who holds the runner at second and throws the first, getting Werber for the second out of the fifth inning. Play was right in front of Cronin. Naturally, needing two runs to tie and not one, he wasn't going to run into a practically sure out of third base. He turned and went back to second. And then the long throw to first got Werber for the second out. That brings Mo Berg to bat. He throws the first one, and Berg gets a fast strike over the outside corner, waist high. One strike. On Berg. Again, takes another look at second base. Pitches and Berg swings and follows the ball back to the screen for the second strike. And so it's two strikes on Berg. Two strikes to count. Throws again and more swings to follow the ball down the right field line. Just misses the second deck. And drops back underneath it in the lower deck seat. Back at first base. It's two strikes. Still two strikes. On Berg. And the pitcher throws again. Moe swings and misses. Striking out for the third out. Oh, that Dietrich really got something working there. He went after a bad ball, but it had plenty on it. A high fast ball inside. He went after it and missed it. And it's no run. One hit. And again, one man left on base in the first half of the fifth inning. The score remaining two to nothing in favor of the White Sox as they come to bat in the last half of the fifth. When your car needs lubrication, be kind to your car and your pocketbook. Have your car Marfac. Marfac is the exclusive technical lubricant which doubles the mileage between grease jobs, gives you the finest of lubrication service. When your technical operator Marfacts your car, you know that every bearing is protected against grinding, wearing, metal-to-metal contact. 
First White Sox hitter in the fifth inning is Tony Platt. Stands there waiting. He was also the first man up in the second. Markham is warming up out there with Oscar Melillo. Reserve infielder, Chicago boy. Ski finally throws the ball off the second base, flips the glove to Berg. And then starts back to the bench as that keystone combination tosses the ball back and forth and finally gets it back to the pitcher. White Sox leading 2 to nothing in the last half of the fifth inning. Tony Platt is back. Markham out there. Hikes up on his belt, adjusts his cap. Wipes his fingers dry and then gets a grip on the ball. He has his sign. He's winding up. Pitches and Platt swings to foul the ball back to the screen for a strike. One strike on Platt. Waiting there again. Starts his wind up. Throws and Tony sits down under the ball to take it high and inside for ball one. That makes it one and one, one ball and one strike. Throw back a pass to pitcher. Cronin got it out there, threw it into Werber, who tossed it back to pitcher. He'd run in almost to the pitcher's mound. It's one and one, one ball and one strike. Throws again, and Tony waits for a slow one, then swings but fouls it back to the screen. And it's one ball and two strikes on fire. One and two. So ready again. It's winding up once more. Throws, and there's strike three. A fastball over the inside corner, a little above the knees. He is called out on strike, and it's one out in the fifth inning. One out of the fifth inning for the White Sox, with Luke Sewell, the White Sox catcher up there at the plate. Wyatt is walking rather dejectedly back toward the bench after taking that third strike. Sewell steps up there, but she starts to wind up, throws, and Luke waited for a slow one, was going to go after it, changed his mind, and the ball sort of floated over the plate about waist high for strike one. Strike the count, and there comes a ball. It's wide, so it's one and one. One ball and one strike on Sewell. Winding up once more. Pitches, and Luke swings it along. Fly way down the left field line, way, way down there. But it's going foul and lands back in the second row box seat, far down beyond the stock bullpen at the very end of the left field seat, back of the foul line. Didn't go into the left field stand. And it's one and two. Ball was pretty well hit. One ball and two strikes. Just as Markham was about to wind up, the pitcher the hitter stepped out of the box. Umpire McGowan called time. And Lucas back up there, so Markham winds up. Pitches, and it's a curveball wide for ball two. The count is two balls and two strikes on Sewell. Two and two. Winds up once more, throws it a curveball wide for ball three. And it makes it three and two. Three balls and two strikes on Luke. Three and two is the count. And hitter hits the next one, a bounder back through the box into center field for a base hit. 
bounding single to center by Luke Sewell, putting him on first base with one out in the fifth inning, and Bill Dietrich getting a grand hand from the fans as he walks out of the bench and up toward the plate. Dietrich, who has been pitching beautiful ball, is up there at bat now with one out, Sewell on first base, White Sox leading the Red Sox two to nothing. First pitch is a ball wide and low for ball one. One ball called. And the hitter swings hard at the next one and lands on all fours, bounding over the plate to keep from landing on his face as he misses it for strike one. And it's one ball and one strike on Dietrich. One and one to count. He reached out to bunt the next one, but it hit the ground right at his feet, mounted up and hit him in the knee, and then went out into the infield. And it's a foul for strike two, making it one ball and two strikes on Dietrich. Mr. Watch has played pretty closely, finally gets his sign, steps onto the slab, and is ready to pitch Dietrich once more. Watch his first base and throws, and Bill gets a curveball wide for ball two. And it's two balls and two strikes on Dietrich. Two and two. Now with the runner on the goal, the hitter takes the next one, and Sewell gets in there standing up. Steals second, standing up. What do you know about that? Old Luke really went out there that time. The pitcher Markham apparently was paying no attention to him. He gave him every opportunity of uh, getting a good start there. Dietrich with the count of two and two, uh, didn't know whether he was going to get a bad ball or not, so he didn't put on the hit and run. But Sewell got a great start and got into second base standing up. Oh, it's another stolen base for Sewell. He's had two or three of them so far this year. For a catcher, especially a catcher that's been around as long as Luke has, that's going all right. So Sewell is now on second base with a count of three and two on Dietrich. And Bill gets the third strike. It's over the heart of the plate, just above the knees. He didn't go after it. And he's called out on strikes for the second out. Makes a two out of the fifth inning for the White Sox. Sewell is still on second base. And the man at bat is the Ripper. Rip Ratcliffe, White Sox, leadoff man, and left fielder. Stocky little left-handed hitter. And the first pitch is a ball wide. One ball called. Takes another look back at second base and throws. And Rip fouls the ball back into the right of the plate, coming up into the second deck over to our right a little bit. And it's one and one. One ball and one strike on Radcliffe. The pitcher, Markham, gets another ball, goes over to use the rosin back for a moment, steps back on the slab, and is ready now to pitch to Radcliffe again. Remember, Sewell is on second base with two out in the fifth inning. And there's a high one wide for ball two, and it's two balls and one strike on Radcliffe. White Sox leading two to nothing in the last half of the fifth inning. Markham's on the rubber again, waiting for the sign, has it. Pitches and Radcliffe gets the third ball high and wide, so it's three balls and one strike on the ripper. Three and one the count.
Well, they decide to walk him on the next one, so they give him that fourth ball. Not give him a good one to hit at. And he gets the first base on the base on ball. So the White Sox have runners on first and second. The two out of the fifth inning, and little Mike Pivich is at bat. Pivich up there at the plate. Markham gets back on the rubber, gets ready now to pitch to Pivich. Husky little right-handed swinger. The throws and Pivich gets the curveball wide for ball one. One ball called. Ready again, pitches and Pivich swings and falls the ball on the ground and rolls over to where Haas is waiting. He'll grab for it, but it hits his hand and bounds on back of him. And it's one and one. One ball and one strike on Kravitz. One and one to count. One ball and one strike. Ready once more. Looks at second. Pitches a slow ball and Kravitz steps back to let it curve inside for ball two. Rather sort of dropped inside. Your old gravity curve that time. And it's two and one. And won the count. Pitcher ready again. Still watch the second, then throws. Radcliffe and Pivich hit the beauty out into left center for a base hit. Stool is scoring easily. Radcliffe is tearing for third. Slides in safely. And Pivich kept right on and pulled up at second base. A line single to left center by Pivich. Scoring Stool from second base without any trouble. And it moves Radcliffe to third. And Pivich himself went to second on the throw to third. Rather, well, I'll say a fairly close play at third base, but not enough so to say that he man was almost out. Now the Sox have runners on second and third. Two out, one run home in the fifth inning, and Mule Hunt is at bat. Markham starts to wind up, throws. Mule swings in an easy bounder. Krivich comes in at the plate, but Werber dashes over in front of Cronin to get the ball and throw to first. Getting hot for the third out and ending the fifth inning. In the fifth inning, the White Sox had one run, two hits, two men left on base. And the score is three to nothing in favor of the White Sox at the end of the fifth inning. Now again, for just a moment, we return to the studio. For days, huge presses have been turning out the 1936 Texaco Baseball Scorebook by the thousands in order that each baseball fan may have a personal copy of Hal Totten's own system of play-by-play scoring. The 1936 Texaco Baseball Scorebook is the very thing you've been wanting to complete your enjoyment of these games. Hal Totten's system is set down in detail. It's easy to follow. And in addition, during these daily broadcasts, as unusual plays develop, Hal Totten will tell you just how to score them. Every baseball fan will also appreciate the fund about the valuable baseball information contained in the book. In addition to photographs and rosters of both teams, there's a complete schedule of every major league game and several pages of interesting Cubs and Sox data. Here's all you have to do to get your copy of the 1936 Texaco Baseball Scorebook. Just go to any Texaco service station and ask for a request card. Write your name and address on the card, stamp it, and mail it. Remember, the 1936 Texaco Baseball Scorebook is absolutely free. Send in your request card today. And now back to Comiskey Park for the continuation of the baseball game, brought to you by permission of the Chicago White Sox 
and the Boston Red Sox to stimulate interest in our national game and in your local team. Take it, Hal. We're on the air again, George, right? Okay, starting the sixth inning, Markham at bat. Took the first pitch and then hit the next one in the center field for a long fly to Previch for the first out in the sixth inning. One out of the sixth inning for the Red Sox, and Cook is at bat. Winds up, throws the first one, and the hitter swings it a boundary down to Benora, who backs up, takes it. Toss it to Dietrich, and he gets the man at first base on a pretty play for the second out. That's always one of the prettiest plays in baseball at that. That first baseman taking a throw, and then you watch the pitcher and the, and the batter converge on first base in a foot race there, and then the pitcher has to take that throw and at the same time make the base and get it for the second out. That makes it two out of the sixth inning for the Red Sox, and Kramer... Roger Kramer, the center fielder is there, decides to wind up throws. Very high one wide for ball one. It was Raj who broke Dietrich's hitless record in the fourth inning with one out after he'd retired ten men in a row. He singled. And there's a ball inside and low. So it's two and nothing. Two balls and no strikes on Kramer. Two and nothing is the count. And there's the next one for a strike over the heart of the plate about waist high. So it's two and one. Two balls and one strike. Kramer didn't like that slow one, but it came up there big as a house. He didn't go after it, so it's two balls and one strike on Kramer. After walking around in a circle for a minute, he steps back up the plate again. Dietrich starts to wind up throws. Rod swings in a high fly out to right center. Hot and Kravich are right over there. And Mike calls for the ball, makes the catch, and it's three out in the sixth inning. No runs, no hits in the sixth inning for the Red Sox. Score is still three to nothing. In favor of the White Sox. White Sox coming to bat in the last half of the sixth inning with Benora at bat and Dietrich again getting a hand from the fans as he strolls into the bench. This broadcast, the White Sox Boston game, comes to you direct from Comiskey Park, home of the White Sox Chicago, as a presentation of your neighborhood Texaco dealer, distributor of Texaco Fire Chief Gasoline. Broadcast comes with the permission of the White Sox and the Red Sox to stimulate interest in our national game and in your own local baseball team. It's the WCFL at Chicago. Markham's out there warming up. Hey. We're ready to go now in the last half of the sixth inning. Big Zeke up there at the plate. Zeke at that. And the pitcher waits there, sort of rubbing that ball up, getting ready to pitch the first one. Zeke finally starts to wind up. Throws. And Zeke takes a strike over the heart of the plate, waist high. One strike on Venora. Markham has the sign again, starts to wind up. And throws, and Zeke swings in a ball hard out to Cronin, who tried to make a one-handed stab at the ball. Couldn't get it, and he went on through into left center for what I believe will be the third consecutive hit of the day for Benora. Cronin dashed way over and made a pass at the ball with his left hand, but couldn't 
get near enough to it to slow it up. And Benuri is on first base. Every ball that he's hit has been really hit on the nose. And that puts Benuri on first base with nobody out in the sixth inning. And Luke Appling is at bat. First pitch is wide. They thought that they might put a hit and run there on the first pitch, as they sometimes do with Luke at bat. So they called for a pitch out. Throws the next one is ball two, high and inside. For the count is two and nothing on Appling. Two balls, no strikes. Here comes the first strike, the fast ball over the heart of the plate, up around the letters, and it's two balls and one strike on Appling. Luke swings the ball, the next one into the stands, the right of the plate, it hits, also hits the front of the second deck. That's three of them that have hit up there, right, and within a few feet of each other today. Two and two is the count, two balls and two strikes. And Luke swings the next one, hit a fly to right field, but Cook is waiting right there and makes the catch for the first out in the sixth inning. One out of the sixth inning for White Sox. Benore is still on first base, and Jackie Hayes is at best. Hayes is up there, takes a look at the first base, looks at the plate. And Jockey drives the ball hard into right field for a good clean base hit. Run around second base. He's going for third. Ball is coming over there, but he slides in. And apparently was tagged out as he was sliding by Werber. Anura tried to get the third base on a very short single to right, which was fielded fast. While the throw wasn't good, Werber ran up on it, caught it, and then tagged Venura as he slid past him toward the base and got him for the second out. Single to right by Hayes. Well hit. But Benura was out trying to get the third on it. The play going from Cook to Werber. For the second out. So it's two out of the sixth inning. Hayes is on first base. And Tony Platt is at best. Platt is up there at the plate. He's there in the mound getting his time. Has it. Has a stretch. Back the runner at first, and then steps off the rubber, so Hayes moves back toward first. Now the pitcher pitches, and Hayes hits the ball hard into left field for a base hit. Good clean single. Hayes makes the turn, but goes back to second base when the ball comes in fast from Manush. Dr. Runners on first and second, with two out of the sixth inning, and Luke Stuhl is at bat. They're waiting. Situation out there for the sign. There's the stretch again. He looks back at the runner at second and pitches. And Luke swings to miss the fastball for a strike. It's one strike on Sewell. Cellini is taking his daily workout out in the stock bullpen with Muddy Rule. Next pitch to Sewell is inside and blow for a ball in the count. It's one ball and one strike on Sewell. One and one is the count. 
Hook swings, hit the next one down the third baseline. Weber grabs it, races for third base, and Deep Hayes there, forcing him for the third out and ending the sixth inning for the White Sox. And so it's no run, three hits, two men left on base. And the last out of the sixth inning for the Sox. And the score is still three to nothing in favor of the White Sox over the Red Sox at the end of the sixth inning. Now again, for up to the minute scores and complete batteries from other cities. We return to the studio. In the National League in Boston, the Chicago Cubs won their game from the Bees today, one to nothing, when they scored one run, eight hits, and one error. To the Bees, no runs, five hits, and no errors. Carlton and Hartnett went the entire route for the Cubs, which was an 11-inning game. Lanning and Lopez started for the Bees with Smith on the mound in the 11th. In Philadelphia, the Phillies are leading the St. Louis Cardinals at the end of the first half of the eighth inning by a score of five to three. Farmley and Ogradowski working for the Cards with Walker pitching in the eighth and Passaw and Atwood working for the Phillies. In New York, the Giants lead the Pittsburgh Pirates at the end of the first of the eighth, six to nothing. Blanton and Patton open for the Pirates, Brown on the mound in the fifth, Smith and Mancuso going the entire route for the Giants. In Brooklyn, the Dodgers set down the Cincinnati Reds in their game, 11 to four, and they scored 11 runs, 18 hits and two errors to the Reds, four runs, three hits and no errors. Derringer and Lombardi started for the Reds with Stein in the sixth and Hollingsworth on the mound in the seventh. Butcher and Phelps, the Dodger battery, the entire route. In the American League, in Detroit, the Tigers lead the Washington Senators at the end of the first half of the fifth inning, three to nothing. Whitehill and Mellie's the Senator battery, the Tigers using Lawson and Hayworth. In Cleveland, the New York Yankees lead the Indians at the first half of the fifth inning, two to one. Gomez and Dickey, the Yankee battery, Allen and Pitlack working for the Indians. In St. Louis, the Browns and Philadelphia Athletics are tied at the end of the third inning, one each. Ross and Hayes, the athletic battery, the Browns using Andrews and Giuliani. And now back to Comiskey Park and Hal Totten. Take it, Hal. Back at the ballpark for the seventh inning. Manush hit the first ball pitch, a hard bounder down to Jackie Hayes, who caught it on the first hop. He couldn't seem to get a grip on the ball, but he finally did throw with all the time in the world to get the man. He threw very badly. Manura leaped into the infield, grabbed the ball, and still managed to tag Manush as he slid in, and so it's one out. Now Fox at bat hits the line drive, and Radcliffe backs up just a few feet to get it for the second out in the seventh inning. Two out of the seventh inning for the Red Sox, and Croner is at bat. Croner, the second baseman up there. Right-handed hitter, Dietrich throws the first one. It's a strike over the outside corner, a little above the knees. Croner, for some peculiar reason, just dropped the bat and took a look at that ball. Finally swings the next one to hit the ball, and it falls against his foot, bounds out into the infield. So Dietrich comes in to get it, and it's two strikes on Croner. Two strikes to count. Throws once more, and Croner hits the line drive to center field. Center fielder Krivich is waiting there and makes the catch nicely for the third out. The ball was pretty well hit, all right straight to Krivich. So it's no runs, no hits. Again in the seventh inning, first half of the seventh for the Red Sox. And the crowd standing up for the regular seventh inning stretch. As the White Sox come in for the last half of the seventh inning, leading the Red Sox by a score of three to nothing. First man at bat for the White Sox will be Bill Dietrich, the pitcher. And you can imagine the hand he'll get as he walks out there to the plate. 
Don't forget tomorrow's doubleheader. The first chance to see the White Sox for a while. And they play this powerful Boston Red Sox team two games. First game starting at 1.30. Besides the general admission and box seats that have been on sale all the last week and a half, there'll be some 40,000 general admission seats placed on sale tomorrow morning when the gates open. So there's room for everybody on... Well, come on out and have fun. Everybody had fun last week. All but one or two. Deepak is at bat to start the last half of the seventh. Stands there rubbing up that ball. Gets ready to pitch the first one. Bill, who usually gets himself a base hit or two during a ball game. Mark winds up, throws, and Deepak swings in a pop fly coming down foul to the right of the plate. Berg is waiting for it and has it for the first out in the seventh inning. One out of the seventh inning for the White Sox. And Radcliffe, the ripper, is up there. Let's hand it hitter, the White Sox leadoff man and left fielder. The ripper stands there at the plate waiting as Markham drives off his hand, leans over to get his sign. Stops the right fielder, looks back to the plate again. Starts to wind up. And pitches a hitter swing, hit one out to Fox, who got it, runs over to first base, beating Radcliffe for the second out of the seventh inning. So it's two out of the seventh inning for the White Sox, and Mike Kravich, White Sox center fielder, is at bat. Taking quite a while, but finally seems to be ready. Starts to wind up and throws and strike over the heart of the plate. Waste time. One strike on Kravitz. He swings the next to fall it into the second deck above and to the right of the plate. It's two strikes on Mike. He strikes the count. Markham waits out there, has his sign again, starts to wind up. And throws, and it's a ball inside across the waist, making it one and two. One ball and two strikes on Peter. One and two the count. Mike comes back to take a ball inside for ball two, and it's two balls and two strikes. The ball bounced out of Bird's glove, rolled out to the right. <laughs> And Moe threw it back to Pitcher, and it was bad throw and got away from him. So Werber trots over in front of Joe Cronin, scoops it up, throws it back to Markham. And Johnny walks slowly back up onto the mound. The throws and the hitter hits a line drive. Oh, Cronin made a backhanded, one-handed stab of that line smash. For the third out, ball was mighty well hit, and Joe Cronin, leaping over to his right, suddenly swung around, made a one-handed, backhanded stab of the ball, and hung on to it for the third out. So it's no runs, no hits in the seventh inning for the White Sox. The score remaining three to nothing in favor of the White Sox. End of the seventh inning. First man at bat in the eighth will be Joe Cronin, who just made that great play.
smart motorists know that fire chief's extra power, faster pickup, and instant starting means more pleasure and extra miles per gallon. Fire chief gasoline is able to do all of that for you because it's made to meet government specifications for emergency gasoline. That is why the wise motorists use fire chief exclusively. Fill up with fire chief today and start saving money. The eighth inning for the Red Sox. He's up there at the plate, suddenly steps out of the box, finally steps back up to the plate. And Dietrich is getting ready to pitch the first one to him. Starts his wind-up, throws, and Joe takes a strike over the heart of the plate a little above the knee. One strike on Cronin. Dietrich winds up, throws again, and it's ball one. It missed the outside corner, also seemed a little low. So it's one ball and one strike on Cronin. Swings the next one to hit a bounder down to Pyatt, who goes out to his left, gets it, throws the first, and Cronin, leaping hard for the base, is out for the first out in the eighth inning. One out of the eighth inning for the Red Sox, and Werber, Bill Werber, the Boston third baseman, is at bat. Throws the first one, and Werber takes it high and inside for ball one. One ball called. Winds up again, throws, and it's a ball wide and low, and the county is two and nothing. Two balls and no strike on Werber. One nothing to count. And there's a fast strike over the heart of the plate waist high to make it two and one. Two balls and one strike on Werber. Hitter swings the next one to follow down here in the seat to the second deck right in front of us. And it's two and one. Two balls and one. Two and two rather. Two balls and two strikes on Bill Werber. Two and two on Werber. He's getting his sign again. He's winding up. Draws and Bill takes ball three. It's high and inside. And it makes it three balls and two strikes on Werber. Three and two the count. Draws again and Werber swings in a high fly. Coming down foul back of the plate. Sewell is running back under with the umpire running right along in front of him. And Luke catches up with the ball and grabs it. We'll hang on to it for the second out. He had to go a long way for that. Umpire McGowan was trying to keep out of his way, but every time he'd turn and run somewhere, Luke would be running right after him. Of course, Luke was watching the ball, and the umpire was running right in front of him, but finally got out of the way enough so that Luke was able to get over there and make that catch. It looked very funny, because naturally the umpire was watching Luke to keep out of his way, not following the ball, or he would have gotten in Luke's way. First pitch to Berg, he falls back into the second deck over here for strike one. Bill winds up, throws again, and the hitter swings in a high fly out into left center. Cleavage is waiting for it out there, and has it for the third out in the eighth inning. No runs, no hits in the eighth inning for the Red Sox. And again, Dietrich receives a great ovation as he strolls back to the bench after pitching another very fine inning. White Sox are still leading the Red Sox by a score of three to nothing. Going into the last half of the eighth inning, 
with Mulas, the first White Sox hit it. comes out to warm up the pitcher because Berg was the last man at bat and must take a moment to get into his sector, shin guards, mask. Moe is walking out of the dugout and is on his way up to the plate. Ah stands there adjusting his cap, waiting. Berg takes the last couple of throws. Ending up with the usual throw to second. And Haas steps up there, starts to dig in and get a place to break his foot. As he steps up the plate, now this time Cronin threw the ball back to pitcher himself and called encouragement to him instead of rubbing it up and throwing it back to Croner. It's winding up. And throws now, and the hitter takes a strike over the heart of the plate about waist high. One strike on Haas. And Markham winds up once more. Pitches and mule swings hit a foul clear up over the stands above third base. And it's two strikes on Haas. Two strikes to count. sort of fidgets with the ball while he gets his time but now winds up again throws and Haas swings hit the ball into center field for a long clean single single to center field by Haas putting him on first base ball throw into the second base and corner got away from him but rolled only a few feet over to the right he walked over and got it and tossed it back to Cronin These two names are sort of puzzling at that when spoken Croner and Cronin Croner spells his name K-R-O-N-E-R and Cronin C-R-O-N-I-N, of course. Now a big Zeke Lenore is up there and he hits the first ball pitch. A short ground ball. And second baseman comes in, gets it, throws to Cronin at second. And the throw to first just barely nips Lenore on a very close play. And it's two out in the eighth inning. Double play. Croner to Cronin. Pot. And it's two out in the eighth inning for the Red Sox with Appling at bat. Luke Appling up there at the plate. Two out in the eighth inning. Steps the front of the mound. Now he's back on the slab waiting to get his time. Starts his wind up. And pitches and it's a curveball wide and low for ball one. One ball called on Appling. Winds up again, pitches, and Luke gets the curveball wide for ball two. So it's two and nothing, two balls and no strikes on Appling. Winding up again, throws, and Luke gets another ball. It's wide and low. So it's three and nothing, and Bird turns around, asks the umpire for another ball, gets it, and throws it back to pitcher. Fire McGowan is examining the ball. It was. Hand it to him, rubs it up a little, decides it's all right, sticks it back in his pocket. 
And there's the first strike. Got over the plate near the inside corner, a little below the waist. Helping just step back and let it go by without any intention of going after it. Three and one. And there's the fourth ball, high and inside. Helping gets the base on ball. Puts him on first base with two outs in the eighth inning. And Jackie Hayes is a set. Hayes, White Sox, second baseman up there with two out in the eighth. And the first pitch is a strike over the heart of the plate. The catcher snapped the ball down to first base, but Appling leaped back safely. One strike on Hayes. Pitcher throws the first this time, and again to make sure of it, Appling slides back to the base instead of just running back. Takes his lead again. Pitcher suddenly steps off the slab, so Appling walks over toward first and stands watching him, so Hayes steps out of the batter's box. Jackie finally steps back up to the plate. He throws, and Hayes started the swing, but stopped about halfway through to duck a high pass, one inside. And it's ball one. Cronin started to call in an inquiry from shortstop position as to what it was, and apparently now it's been called a strike. Hayes started for the ball. He got around pretty far on it. There's no question about that. And then he had to twist away as the pitch was coming right in at him, but he apparently swung enough to have it called a strike. So it's two strikes. Instead of one and one, it's two strikes on Jackie Hayes. Markham throws again with a runner on the goal. The hitter takes a high one. And uh, Appling is out as he tries to run around Cronin, who is on his knee, taking a low throw to the left. But Cronin got the ball over to get him before he could get to the base. Appling stands there with one foot on the bag, still a little bit peeved that he didn't make it, but he's out feeling for the second time today. This time he's throw going to Cronin at second base. And it's no runs, one hit. The last half of the eighth inning. The score remaining three to nothing in favor of the White Sox. At the end of the eighth inning. And we remind you once more, while we have a moment, if you, you haven't yet asked for your 1936 Texaco scorebook, now's the time to do it. You'll be doing a lot of driving probably over the weekend, stopping in at Texaco service stations. Ask them for a request card. And when you fill it out with your name and address, it's already addressed to me on the other side. Put a one-cent stamp on it and mail it. You'll receive this book, which contains the official blanks, the 17 full games, a complete scoring system with illustrations and explanations, complete sets of pictures of the White Sox and Cubs with their rosters and schedules. And it's something that not only is handy to have as a souvenir, but it's very practical and one that you'll use and treasure in years to come and days to come when you like to relive the games that you've watched or heard this year. Now Markham is at bat to start the ninth inning for the Red Sox. And the first pitch is a fast strike over the heart of the plate about knee high. One strike on Markham. Johnny steps out of the box, but he's back up to the plate again. Steve cleans over to get the time, starts to wind up. Pitches, and the hitter takes a wide one across the knees for ball one. And the count is one ball and one strike. One and one on Markham. Throws again, and Johnny takes the ball. It's over the plate, but too low. So it's two and one. Two balls and one strike. Swings the next hitter, driving to center field. Peters is backing up easily. Makes the catch, and it's one out of the ninth inning. 
One out of the ninth inning for the Red Sox. And Dusty Cook, the Red Sox right fielder, a left-handed hitter also, is up there at the plate. First pitch is wide and low for ball one. One ball called. Throws again, and it's a strike over the heart of the plate just above the knees. So it's one and one. One ball and one strike on Cook. Keeps winding up. Pitches, and the hitter jumps back to take a ball inside and low, and it's two and one. Two balls and one strike. Throws once more, and the hitter swings and miss a high fastball inside, and it's strike two. Two and two. Dusty steps back up there to the plate. Heatrick starts to wind up, throws, and Cook gets the third ball, a high fastball outside, to make it three and two. Three balls and two strikes. Brings again to hit a foul coming into the second deck. Over to our left, down in front of us a little bit. Mounds down toward the front of the stand. But it doesn't bound over the edge. It's still three and two on Cook. Three balls and two strikes. He pitches again and Cook swings hit a bounder down to Pyatt who gets it nicely. Throws high to first, but Benura makes a reaching one-handed catch the ball. Reaching high into the left and hangs onto it for the second out. Cook, a very fast man. Being out by a rather narrow mark. So it's two out in the ninth inning for the Red Sox. And Kramer, Roger Kramer, the center fielder, is at bat. Takes the first pitch, a high fastball outside for ball one. One ball called. And there's a strike, a pass one over the inside corner about letter high. And the count is one ball and one strike on Kramer. One and one. Rod waits for the next one. Swings hits the pop fly. Fire is in the grass, calling for it. Backs up, makes the catch, and the game is over. The Sox winning three to nothing. Woodson takes him by the hand. He pitched a great game, and from all he really pitched a great ball game. Serves a marvelous. No runs, no. And the totals: White Sox has three runs. And had five misses, had no runs, two hits, one error, two men left on the base. The time of the game is announced the field is one hour and 33 minutes. We've seen no correction on that as yet, and imagine that is about right. And uh, the winning pitcher, of course, 134, one hour and 34 minutes to the track total. The winning pitcher, of course, was Dietrich, and the losing pitcher was Markham. Totals again. White Sox had three runs, ten hits, one error with five men left on base. The Red Sox had no runs, only two hits and one error with two men left on base. Time of the game, an hour and 34 minutes. The winning pitcher, Dietrich. The losing pitcher, Markham. The same two teams play a doubleheader out here tomorrow. The first game starting at 1.30, as we mentioned earlier. Besides the box seat tickets and Reserve seat tickets that have been on sale for the last week and a half. There will be 40,000 general admission tickets placed on sale tomorrow morning when the gates open. So there's room for everybody, and everybody have fun. Two games, first game starting at 1.30.
between the White Sox and the Red Sox tomorrow here at Comiskey Park. That's all for now. So speaking to George as well as myself, Al Cotton's with you. Good afternoon from Comiskey Park, and we return to the studio. Bye now. If you enjoy the podcast, please help me out and do one of three things. Follow, subscribe this podcast, and leave a review. It really helps. Share us with your baseball friends. Uh, let them know about us. Or jump over to members.thisdayinbaseball.com. Join our email list, community, and our family of baseball podcasts.